Welcome to the CoinRivet podcast. I'm Jeff Gross. CoinRivet makes it easy to buy, sell, send, and store cryptocurrencies quickly in one place. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast to hear all future episodes. Welcome, everyone. We have got a very special guest. My man, Chad Holloway, is in the building. He knows his way around the poker tables. He knows his way around the poker stories, articles, the whole deal. He's doing it all. My man's crushing. He's been around the industry forever. And he's got one more bracelet than me. He's got a World Series of Poker bracelet. It's crazy that he's better probably at his hobby than my profession. Chad, how are you? I don't know about better, Jeff, but uh, I, I like that sentiment, and I really appreciate the uh, opportunity to come on here and, and chat with you. Um, it, it, it never gets old hearing that I have a bracelet. It's a good reminder that I might not ever do anything again as far as being a poker player, but I still have that bracelet to fall back on, I guess. Well, l- let me let me ask you, because you know we've talked about it. I know I remember when you did this, I believe 2013. You know, it's been eight years now, and I I was uh, playing a lot of poker at the time and, you know, battling every day. And I was like, oh, man. But you realize, like, it's like a Super Bowl, right? It's so hard. You got guys or people, NBA championship, that get there that never win some great players um, that maybe will go their whole poker career and never have a bracelet. And, you know, it's got to feel good, right, to just be able to, like, pop in and out. You don't play a ton, and now you have that. Because, like, whether you brick bubble the next 20 or win another bracelet, like, no one can take that away from you. How – nice is that to actually have that bracelet considering the volume you play is not a lot of actual poker yeah it's it's awesome i won't lie like no matter how bad of a run i'm having or you know bad luck that i experience you can look back to that moment and say can i really complain too much like i have a bracelet i ran pure that one time in a tournament that really matters so um, there is some reassurance there some validation there so um, it, it is pretty nice and you know when that tournament happened um, when we were heads up, there was a big hand where I got counterfeited um, on the river, and he basically doubled into a two-to-one chip lead through me. And then, you know, I started feeling those emotions, a little tilt or what have you. And I remember sitting there. I remember exactly looking at the bracelet, which they had set up on the table, feeling these emotions, and just looking at that bracelet and said, you know, thinking to myself, Chad, you need to, you need to calm down, just play your game. Do you really want to be that guy who said he was one card away from winning a World Series of Poker bracelet? And uh, I think about that, you know, luckily it worked out for me. I came back and I won, but man, I can only imagine living with that feeling of being one card away from a bracelet. And there's been a lot of people who do live with that feeling, I'm sure. And I'm just glad it's not me. So, Well, Chad, I know we didn't set this up. This does feel, I know, you know, poker players, there's a lot of ego. It's about me. It's about me. You're hitting close to home for me because I do have a second. I was one hand away versus Mark Radoja, ace king to king 10. I'm sorry, ace jack to king 10 all on pre. It was like 14 to 12 blinds. You know, he had me slightly covered, but it was essentially for the bracelet. And, and you know, it, it does hit home because it, it's hard, right? Like, you know, I, it's, I, I haven't even got a second. I've got some deep runs, some foul tables, but it is so hard to win. And, you know, congrats to you. And again, I think it's a, a lot about not what happens, how you react to what happens. And, you know, winning a bracelet having great momentum, having something like that is also very powerful, but it's also very powerful uh, to not have it. Right. And you can kind of take some positive lessons or memories and feelings um, from that as well. I mean, look at like Jason Kuhn, right? I think he just got his first one right now, one of the best players in the world. And you know, obviously it doesn't define a career, but if you play tournaments for a living, I got almost a three-year-old son now, I do want to be able to show him and be like, Hey, look, your dad played something for a long time, seconds and all that's fun, but um, it would be nice to have a, a signature win. Um, we could talk a lot about that, but I guess to move on, you maybe introduce yourself a bit uh, and what your, your day-to-day is typically because you're not a poker player professionally by trait. You do that. Would you? Is it fair to say that's a 
uh, it's, it's a hobby or is it a, you know, would you call yourself semi-professional? How would you kind of sum up what you do for a living at the moment? Sure. Yeah. So poker has been a lifelong, I guess, hobby. Um, you know, I had aspirations at one point, but realized quickly that just the ebbs and flows, the ups and down of the game don't really go well with who I am. It's, it's hard for me to deal with those sw- uh, swings. You know, I used to play professionally, if you will, or, or for a living for a couple of years. And it just was, I couldn't deal with those swings. And so I thought, what's a good way for me? I still love poker. I want to be around poker. What's a good way that I can do that? I can continue to play, but I don't have to rely on the game as my sole source of income. Um, and I've always had a knack for writing. Um, and so I decided to try to combine my skills there with my love of poker and started writing about poker and trying to break into the poker media side of things. And, um, so it's been, that was about 2009. Um, I got an internship at Bluff Magazine at the World Series of Poker. Uh, in 2010, I got a live reporting gig with Poker News. And I think that's how most people associate me as Poker News. I've been with them pretty much ever since. There was a stint in between where I spent three years with the Mid-State Poker Tour, the MSPT. But uh, right now I've worked my way up. I'm the executive editor of the United States for Poker News, basically, um, play a part in all the content that is U.S. related, um, relationships, events that we report and things like that. Also co-host the Poker News podcast with Sarah Herring, write a lot of articles, uh, just generally do a lot of work. And, you know, day to day, the Poker News, it's news. So it's a news cycle. There's always something new to be writing about. And so every day it's kind of monitor the industry, see what's going on, write about what's going on, go to events like I am right now. I'm in Las Vegas for the Win Millions um, report these big stories and winners and, and things like that. It's just, it's fun. It never ends because there's always something. And, you know, right. the World Series is kind of the the big one. We always set our calendar by it from World Series to World Series. And, you know, looking at what to you makes great stories, what do you find is more interesting as when you're writing it and what do you think people kind of enjoy more? Do they like to see, you know, the, the heaters of Adamo and uh, Dan Coleman, Fedor Holtz, and this kind of like surreal um runs right where uh you could put a few other people in that category that had these these mystical sort of paths and they just seem like they win everything or is it more the guy that satellited in you know everyone loves a feel-good story what, what to you is more kind of exciting I, I would have to i have my guess but what do you do love the most what type of stories and and, and sort of uh um, or, or or like what do you feel is more incredible when someone who wins they have no experience or someone that's so so hot and just crushing the game, you know, to try to look at them and be like, wow, are they doing something that is like that much better? Do they know something that others don't? What, what to you is more interesting? For me personally, I enjoy writing the stories of people who win satellites or really broke through. We might not have heard of before. Um, as I mentioned, I spent three years working for the MSD, which is a mid-stakes tournament, 1100 buy-in type stuff. And um, it was so much more rewarding just knowing, you know, those players would come up and say, oh, thank you for writing this about me, this hand even, let alone an article, and sharing that with their friends and family. And so writing their victories, knowing that they're taking that back home and showing their their family, their friends, the people in their home games, that's pretty rewarding. Um, it might be the only spotlight they get in poker ever, whereas guys like, you know, Michael Adamo and and uh, Ali Amsurovich, these guys who are continually crushing that's great. I do enjoy that too, but they just are used to the accolades, if you will. You know, they're not probably showing their friends and family these things because they're just going to get another write up in a couple of weeks when they win something else. So for me personally, I find that to be more rewarding. 
Right. Yeah, I think that makes that makes sense. Um, and, and to your point, yeah, they may not even look at it, right? Like, you know, it's kind of it's funny, right? You, you like you strive. I actually remember playing with Ali and and uh, PCA in the Bahamas. It must have been whatever one of his early years, and Fedor actually, both of them sort of before anyone knew who they were. But I remember kind of hearing, right? There was like some talk about them, like, oh wow, this kid's a phenom from online, or he's coming up, or whatever. And they just had sort of this energy and thing about them, and then it's just crazy to see because like that's like what they're striving for, right? As a poker player you strive to become known and to become great. And then I guess, you know, just like an athlete or anyone, right. As it kind of, if you get that fame and stardom, maybe it does sort of have a diminishing return and you almost take it for granted uh, at, at some respects. Um, tell me about your experience. Like when you played here, I do want to just cycle back to this, this win, because as you said, you were, you got, you know, double down this guy, you're playing heads up. I, you know, obviously I, these are a lot of names within the poker industry or people that maybe behind the scenes or wouldn't be household poker names. When you got to that final table, were you clear head and shoulders, the most knowledgeable? And was that apparent very quickly? Or was it like, all right, you know, some guys are in the industry, they're around and there's some game. Like how, how big of a favor do you think you were uh, down the stretch there? And, and, and uh, I, yeah, it's an interesting question. I don't think I was a huge favorite at all. So at that final table, uh, the guy who came in ninth, he came in at the final table, just super short. He had one or two blinds. So it was only a matter of time before he busted out, which he did. And then we were eight handed really quickly. And, um, if you looked at those results that you just flashed, a guy named Michael Trevette finished in eighth place. And Michael Trevette, um, I don't know if you can click on his name. He's got, I don't know how much he's won now. He's a poker professional. He's moved up in the stakes. He plays the mixed games, the 10K championships type stuff. Um, there you go. I have over 600K. And uh, he won, I think, a WSOP circuit um, uh, main event at Planet Hollywood a few years ago. I know Michael now, uh, you know, through Poker News, and he's he's a crusher. He's really good. He's going to keep doing good things in the poker world. When we made the final table, he was uh, one of the bigger stacks. I was a bigger stack, and I remember I'd never played with him up until that point. For some reason in the tournament, we just never crossed paths. But I had another colleague at Poker News who finished. I think 12th in that tournament and he had played with him a lot. And so he told me about him. He told me he's aggressive, the kind of the moves that he would pull. And when we were eight handed, there was, to me, it was the defining hand of the, you know, the tournament or of my win where he raised, uh, I believe it was the cutoff. I was in the big blind with ACE eight and I three bet it and he went back to him and he jammed it. And it was, it was a big spot. Like for whatever reason, my read from what I had heard about him, I just felt that he would be doing this with a very wide range that believe it or not, my ACE eight plays pretty well against. Of course it could be crushed by a lot of his range though. Um, I don't know what it was, but I spiked in the chips. It was pretty much for my chips. Um, I was left severely short and I had ACE eight. He had King Jack and, um, you know, essentially a flip, but I hit an ace on the flop and that was it. And so to get that pot, it was, it eliminated who I think was the best player at the final table. It gave me a really big stack to work with. And I think it kind of struck fear into the other opponents a little bit, right? Like they see that I was willing to take a spot with ace eight. They're probably not going to be shoving on me too light from that point forward. So yeah, um, that was the big, the big hand, I think. It's crazy, right? Because like, it's just so wild. Poker is such a crazy thing, especially when you don't play a ton because variance is, and volume is so important in tournament poker. And it's just like, you know, it's just wild, right? Because that hand, your whatever favorite, say 57, 43, um, or whatever it is, right? The, the math, ace eight to king, whatever the math, 60, 40, whatever you want to call it, depending on the suits, this and that, like, 
it's just a huge hand, right? You lose that and it's like, no one, you, you can't talk about it or it's just like, whatever it happens. But you know, how do you sort of, I guess, one of the things I find most interesting in life of, and the comparison of life and poker, which I love to talk to people who have played and are, are familiar with the game is, I think it kind of gives you a competitive advantage on a lot of areas of life. Like, I, like I feel like you're able to sort of take luck, take variance, understand high high frequent collisions with these hands, these percentages and understanding winning and losing. Um, would you say that's fair? And how would you sort of attribute what you've taken away either from playing or reporting and learning in poker and life? What is maybe some of the more valuable lessons that you would have got over your call it 13 year career and in, in deep into the poker world? Well, one thing, and you just mentioned the word is luck. It's been a different perspective on luck. I think when people, I got asked about that tournament when I won, did you get lucky? You know, and I think most people when they think luck and when you get lucky is, you know, did you get it in bad against pocket aces and crack them? Yes, that's one form of luck. But I've learned during my time in the poker world, there are many different forms of luck and to appreciate them all. So for instance, um, you know, a hand you might not have played that could have resulted in your elimination. Instead, you, for whatever reason, folded it or you got squeezed out of the pot and you go on to win. That's a form of luck, uh, you know, in my opinion, at least in my experience. Um, and so to appreciate those little sort of details um, in that particular tournament that I won, I didn't get lucky like cracking aces like I, I just uh, laid out. But my form of luck in that tournament was you know, a short stack moves all in, a medium stack jams over the top, it folds to me in the big blind, and I look down at pocket kings. Um, that's a different form of luck. That's just a gift that is in your lap, you know, and fortunately, I found a lot of those spots and they held up every time. And so I've just learned over the years to um, recognize different forms of luck and to appreciate them all because uh, there's no doubt that having luck on your side in whatever form is is very beneficial in life and in poker. For sure. Yeah. And I think that's well said. And I think it's something that, you know, as you understand math and poker more, you kind of realize there are a lot of these situations and it, it really does carry over into life, right? There's a lot of times where little things can, can be a break or you don't get in a fender bender that you would have, or, you know, I like to, I love that quote. And I think Martin Jacobson sort of talked about it. Obviously he didn't come up with that, but this is where it kind of got highlighted to me about luck is when preparation meets opportunity. And I think that that's a big thing about poker as well as you kind of learn that, you know, you do kind of make your own luck, right? You find ways. There's often a lot of times it's not the hand you play. It's not like ace, king, ace, queen, or, you know, it's like it's it's finding spots that normally most people wouldn't find or wouldn't play or small blind, big blind or other areas. And I think that's true in life, right? There's a lot of people, if you give them your path, your trajectory, you know, they're not going to be the executive editor of, of, of USA, right? You kind of make your own luck. You put yourself in positions, you find things, you do the extra work, you, you do things that other people aren't willing to do. And I think this is, again, these are sort of like, this is why I believe poker is the perfect metaphor for life, because there's all these little examples and ways and dealing with winning and losing and all that. So yeah, I just, you know, that that's... Well one quote I like because I like quotes like you just said, and I, I love that one. One that's really resonated with me both in poker and life, um, and this is fairly recently, is that success isn't final and failure isn't fatal. Um, and because I know like when I play a poker tournament and I lose, for whatever reason, it feels like the end of the world to me, right? Like I just am so upset that I busted and it just feels like the end of the world. Um, and it's every time. And I'll be better the next day or a few hours later ready to go tackle the next tournament. But at that moment, it does feel like that uh, that that failure is fatal. 
And on the flip side, I've learned to realize that success isn't final, right? I know there are a lot of people who out there that want to win a World Series of Poker bracelet, um, yourself included, you know, many others. It's the dream of every poker player. And, you know, I've won one. It is something I can hang my hat on. I'm happy with it, but it isn't final. That success isn't final. Um, I've seen so many poker players in this industry. I'm sure you have too, that have had what would be a life-changing score to almost everybody. They've had that success and now they are broke or struggling to stay in the game. And so I just try to always remember that, that success isn't final and failure isn't fatal. I like that a lot. And what, what would you say over your tenure and understanding and learning of the game? Because I, I would have to believe you have one of the better perspectives and you hear the stories, you, you know, the behind the scenes, you know, individuals, you watch people, right? You get to kind of notice who's in the game, who's out. You can tell, I'm sure at this point, right? You can kind of tell, I'm sure if you sized up a table, if you're there and walking around and writing, you can kind of know who's like doing well, who's not, right? You can tell by someone's attitude. You can tell by the little things you hear, how they handle bust outs, how they rebuy, all these different things. What would you say is something that the most successful players, what are some attributes that you think uh, are the most important for like, the top players? What are some of the, the, the learnings you've had from, from being, being immersed in this for so long? Yeah, it's interesting. I, what you just described, I witnessed it firsthand just last night in the Win Millions. There was a, a young guy who lost a, a big three-way pot, and I could just – I was looking at his face, and I was seeing that emotion, and I was thinking you – know, he was in his early 20s, I'm sure. And just thinking about, I've been there, I've felt that. You've got a lot to – you know, you'll continue to grow. It won't sting as bad moving forward. Um, I've always had a high degree of respect for a guy like Eric Seidel, who is – it just seems to have cultivated this life outside of poker that is his crowning achievement. Poker, yeah, obviously is a huge part of his life, but he's married, he's got daughters, he's got this whole other life, and he just seems to have found balance, struck this balance. Um, you could even say as much that about Phil Helmuth, you know, with his wife and his kids and his family. Um, and to me, that seems to be the the long-term success plan for players who can find some sort of of balance um i'm not married i'm sure we're going to talk about that uh, here in the, in the show a little bit uh, but like those who are married or have kids and can find uh, a healthy balance between play and not let the ebbs and flows of the game control their their attitudes right it's not easy to go to the world series of poker play 50 events and day in day out get unlucky or bust and still be upbeat and carry on with life. But there are players who have somehow managed to do that. And uh, those are the ones I think have the, the most success and the longer term success, if you will. Yeah. We're going to, we're going to go over and showcase a tweet of yours talking about that and clear up some confusion or, or also bring light to I, one of the greater tweets I've seen and also threw me for a loop. So we're going to, we're going to clarify that, but I do want to talk about the age in the pockets of poker, because I think, one of the biggest problems in the game at the moment is you got young kids, college, 18 to 21, 22, you know, in this range, right, that are sort of finding other passions or projects, or maybe it's chess, maybe it's NFTs, right, the crypto sort of kid generation. So, you know, I, I heard a couple stats at the World Series, like the amount of 21-year-olds or 22, I think it was a few years ago, I saw it was alarming, right? There weren't a lot of 21-year-olds playing the main event, um, even though the main event seems relatively healthy in terms of numbers and size. And of course, with the pandemic and COVID and some change, still got a pretty good turnout this year. Um, but 
what are you what are you noticing in that respect? Are you are you seeing some of this? Do you think poker is there a problem with the ecosystem and the kind of up and coming uh, players? Or also is it just generationally? Like I'm 35, I got an almost three year old. It's difficult. There's not a ton of guys you see with small children that are married that are like in. I think that's like a tough age, right? When you go from like single to married, you almost notice. And correct me if I'm wrong. There's like a gap, right? When you get the family, maybe you take a break or it's kind of like tough, right? This period. And then maybe you go into other things or not, but like you then see some of the older guys, right? Like that, that are, maybe their kids are out of college or that are in high school or later. And then they kind of come back. But I think that gap is tough with the family and, and, and all that. Does that make sense too? Do you notice that a bit? Oh, absolutely. It's something I've thought a, a lot about. So I'm 39 going on 40 by the end of the year. Um, you know, which is kind of old in poker terms, because especially when you see these young 20 somethings coming up in the game. And so, um, I am always about trying to get the game to more people and bringing new people in. We need that, as you said, for the ecosystem. I'm actually quite hopeful right now about what I'm seeing as far as young people coming in. Um, we had a guy come into our home game. He was 18-year-old kid, traveled like two hours to play with us because he couldn't find a game where he was from. And I got to talking to him. I'm just curious, like, how does an 18-year-old get into poker at this point in his life? And right. he basically, for him, was Dan Bilzerian. He's seen Dan Bilzerian posting about it on social media and Instagram or what have you. So I thought that was interesting. And then you have these guys, uh, like the next-gen poker guys, who are just tearing it up. And uh, I've gotten to know through poker news a, a little bit. It's They found it through YouTube. And a lot of people are with the vlogging and the streaming. And so um, I'm hopeful in that regard. I'm hopeful for maybe we'll have something like the Queen's Gambit did for chess, but for poker. You know, I said this a few times. I agree. Because right now, what do we have? We have Rounders, which was an amazing film, but it sort of puts it in a seedy negative connotation, like some of the characters and the, the, you know, like what it's like. There's not really a true feel good. What about these 18-year-olds or 15-year-olds that started with $50 and are, you know, the guys that we know and love that like turned nothing into millions of dollars, right? And did it responsibly and went to college or or came back out of degree or even didn't, but have a successful life. That's the kind of stuff I think we're missing, right? That like poker doesn't need to be a seedy back shelf gambling you know, girls and drinking and drugs and, and sports betting, like it, it, that's sort of what is associated with it. And sure, there's some of that, just like anything, right? You take executives, you take this, you hear like stuff happens. There's, there's good, bad and ugly from all genres and things. But I do think that's a great point. I'm with you on that. That would be huge if you could find a story and make something like that. And I think there is that you keep hearing about rounders too, as well, right? I, I don't know. Do you know anything on that? Is that a thing? Is that really happening? I heard that's like being directed or it's uh, yeah. That, so I've heard rumblings uh, about certain things being within the industry. I know that there is a hope and a plan for rounders too. Um, whether or not that actually comes to fruition, I guess we'll see. There's been rumors in the, in the past, but I know right. that it is um, kind of in the works, if you will, or there's people who are actively trying to, to make that happen. And likewise, I've heard the same about, various projects or shows that people would like to get off the ground. Um, Jim McManus, the author of Positively Fifth Street, which is one of the best poker books in, ever made, in, in my opinion, tweeted recently that his book, uh, there's somebody looking at possibly turning that into some sort of television series. I've heard rumors about like- I gotta check. I've heard that title. I've not read it. So I got to read that. That's oh yeah, it. man. That is a top three poker book in wow. the history of poker, in my opinion. And I've read a lot of them. Um, it's too Unger. Like I've heard rumors and it's, it's true. Like if we had to pick one figure in the poker world to make like a Queen's Gambit type of TV show series out of, who would you pick? I think Stu Unger might be 
might be that guy uh, to really hook people and intrigue people. Um, this, th- this is positively Fifth Street murderers, cheetahs in Binion's world. It sounds that sounds, but see, that sounds kind of like negative, kind of. Uh, it's so so. What it combines is Jim McManus was a, a sports journalist. He got a ten thousand dollars advance to write a story about the World Series of Poker back, and I believe it was two thousand. Um, and he ended up going on to make the final table. This rank amateur. Um, so it's about his journey to the final table, but that's only half the book. It's woven with the story of Ted Binion's murder. Uh, Benny Binion was the founder of you know, the Horseshoe and the World Series of Poker. Jack Binion was heavily involved. Well, there was a brother called Ted Binion who was also involved in the casino business who was murdered. Um, and it, it's just a very intriguing story, a very big part of Las Vegas history. Uh, and just the way he weaves it all together, it's a, a beautiful tapestry. For, and I highly recommend that book to anybody. Wow. I'm going to yeah. have to read that. And I'm actually, I have heard that thrown around. I'd never looked at it or saw it. Well, that looks fascinating. Uh, I will definitely do that. But that, I mean, yeah. So all that, that sounds, that sounds very, very, very interesting of a idea to, to get one, the, one thing I, I, before I forget, because you mentioned like the young people. And I wonder, I'd be curious to know if you feel the same way. I look at them and I'm a little bit jealous in a regard of they still they're just getting into the game and they have this fire and this passion that I remember I used to have. Like there was a time in my life in my 20s where, man, if I had any time, I was at the poker table. If I had I was there 60 hours a week grinding, playing and having fun, um, not a care in the world. And and now I just I want to recapture that. But it's so hard. It's a great, it's really funny you say that because I feel the same way, you know, like I have responsibilities, I'm doing other things. And then it's like, it, it's like, it's just, you know what it is? It's about time because there's different, you know, Bill Perkins book, Die With Zero. He really illustrates this, that you have these pockets in life, which is like common sense. But if you think about it, right, you're single, you're in college or you get a girlfriend or whatever, your things change, right? You get married, you have a kid, you get older, like you can't go hella skiing when you're 80. Right. You can't go. go, You can't do certain things at different points. But yeah, like there's not a time like I I have it. I won't just go drive. You know, the hard rocks 35 minutes from my house. Like, sure, I play in a home game sometimes or whatever. Right. But like I'm not like going to the casino and grinding, playing five, ten or one, two and just like having a beer and having fun doing that because it's just like it's just it's just not happening right now. But like that was grinding, building a bankroll. And like playing in some of these games and playing 18, 26 hour sessions at one, two. And I didn't really have, you know, where it was like meaningful. Like if I had a big session, it was going to like matter. That is like stuff. I'll never forget those times. Like that grinding, that was the most fun in the world. Coming home, talking to your buddies about hands or, you know, or like, oh, I'm going to go to Montreal and play in a, a tournament in another country and another city and sell some action. And like, what, like, these are the things that you just, you can't ever really recreate. And I just like, you know, want to scream at these guys and, and girls that are like playing poker and that are experiencing this game to really cherish it and hone it in because it is something that it's different, you know, it, it just changes. Right. And, and you should enjoy all those moments and, and stuff. Cause it, it, it just changes. It goes in ways. I I'm hoping my goal is to come back on the tour, like full force at some point, right? Like in 10 years or when my son, you know, kids graduate, like come back and be like, I, it's just funny to think about poker in 20 years or 15 years. Have you thought about it? What, what's your prediction? Give me uh, I don't know. Give me 2040 poker. Is there a World Series poker? Are we getting 10,000 runners? Is it a bigger buy-in? Is it a rebuy? Is it PLO? What's 2040 WSOP look like for you? What do you, what would be your guess? 
Yeah, I mean, I hope uh, poker is, is still around. I hope the world uh, allows it to, you know, continue on because sure. it's got a long tradition. I, I think it would still be around. I think the World Series of Poker will always be kind of the the pinnacle brand in poker. I would like to think, you know, the online landscape in the United States by then will will be solidified. Where we'll have something like akin to the Powerball, where we have. 25, 30 states joining forces for an interstate pool, which will allow us to, you know, offer more satellites or things like that. So I do see the uh, fields growing. I do. I'm a firm believer that a lot of things in life are cyclical. Um, And I think like you look at the Queen's Gambit, we've, you know, referenced that many times. Chess was huge at one point and then it kind of died down. And then it came back around. Queen's Gambit gave it that big boost. And in Poker Raw, talking about the next poker boom, I don't think we're ever going to see it to the extent that we did with Chris Moneymaker. But I do think things will come back around and we will experience, you know, these periodic booms. Uh, Maybe one or two of them between now and 2040. What that could be, I don't know. A hit TV show, a woman winning the main event. I don't know. There's there's different things that could potentially spark it, but we'll we'll have to wait and see. But I do uh, feel good about the trajectory of poker. Um, I mean, the game has been around for so long, even before the yeah. World Series was a thing. And so I take solace in that fact that the game's been around a long time. People like to, um, you know, have that socialization, that competitiveness, right? Like you, I can't at 39 go and get on the football field with people, but I can sit down at a poker table and scratch that competitive itch. And so I think there'll always be a need for that. And um, I'm definitely hopeful for it. And and as far as I think, I hope that the main event is always a freeze out and always no limit holder. Yeah. Yeah. I hope that, I think that will stay, stay pure. Um, And and do you think, what do you think the over under is? Do you think, do you think we'll hit 10,000 runners? Do you think that's a, that's a likely thing we'll see in our lifetime? Oh yeah. I think we could very well see that within the, the next few years i mean fingers crossed i don't think it will happen this year i mean i could it could like this new venue change to the strip um what they're what they're doing as far as pumping in some money for exposure and and online stuff like it, it's possible uh, we'll have to wait and see but i do i'm i'm thinking the numbers are going to be pretty solid for this year's wsop and i look forward to see where they go from there and what now that it's on the strip yeah let, let's uh let's let's segue into this this uh Actually, you know what? Before I segue in, I do want to mention you mentioned something about Dan Bilzerian, who you know he's polarizing, right? Like I like Dan. I, I think he's actually a genuine. I'll go on record and say I know him well. I like him. Obviously, some of the statements and he just kind of says what's on his mind, and you don't have to agree with them. But you know, this is to your point about Dan bringing people into poker, right? Like into the game, or you know, I'll, I'll give you an example. I was started vlogging for YouTube when I first ever did it, like. Brought it to the World Series. No idea what I was doing. Got a vlog camera. Walked around. Was filming all just whatever. No clue. I walked into a poker room, and maybe like a month later, during the World Series, a guy came up to me and was like, "He was at my table. It was break. He comes over to me, all excited. You know, he's two to my left, and I'm thinking he's gonna be like, oh, I, you know, I love your, I love one of your vlogs, or I've seen your stuff.' And he's like, "Yo, do you know Doug Polk?" And I was like. I was like, yeah, I know him, you know, he's you know, whatever, whatever. He's like, yeah, that's why I'm here. He was like, I, you know, I watched his videos. This was probably 2017. And he's like telling me he drew, drove from California, hadn't played poker in years, but because of Doug Polk, he saw a video, got him to come. And that's when I realized how valuable content is, right? These are like streams, Twitch, YouTube, podcasts, this type of stuff. Cause this is what gets people excited. And I think it's a, it's a massive part of the game. And you know, that's the thing. Like some people may, you may not like, or their style, but like ultimately, I think that like Doug, 
you know, I like Doug. I think he does a great job for poker, but some people may say he's terrible or he's what polarizing or whatever. It's like that stuff's good for poker. And I mean, you probably hear it all the time, right? You see like influencers or people or even streamers or gamers that aren't even maybe mainstream to some poker people like are bringing in people. Is that, is that fair? Do you think content like from your experience, are you seeing that it matters this stuff? Like do you think it actually moves the needle or not really? Like what, what's your thought on content? Yeah, I think it absolutely does move the needle and the more the merrier. Look, there's content yeah. out there and I consume a lot of it as in my attempt to stay atop of all things in the poker yeah. industry. There's, almost too much content in the world today not just poker just in general like when i want to watch a tv show there's so many good ones it's hard to choose yeah but i have learned to appreciate that in the poker world with all this different kind of content a lot of it isn't my cup of tea i don't personally enjoy yeah. it i don't consume it very much but i appreciate the fact that there are people out there who do enjoy that flavor that brand of content and that it is helping bring people into the game. And so uh, I'm a firm believer in the poker industry that a rising tide raises all ships, you know, so if it benefits, um, you know, if Doug Polk bringing players in, that's great. It's going to benefit us all uh, in, in the yeah. long run. And so I like to see the wider range of poker content. And I like to see these people make a connection. Look, I, I see it a little bit being kind of a sports journalist for poker with the poker news podcast. I'm sure you do with your show, you get these, listeners and they become invested in you and, and they you know have this connection they, they form this connection with you um, and that's rewarding and you become their kind of source for poker entertainment or poker news uh, and, and things like that so um, I love it all I, I think the whole like streaming and vlogging stuff is is very interesting um, I'm really enjoying what that's doing for poker and bringing people in uh, and, you know, guys who have laid the groundwork for that and opening the doors for new guys. Like I said earlier, the next gen poker guys and, and folks like that. So um, it, it's, it's cool. It's different from when I came into the game, you know, like I'm shame, I'm sure you're right there with me, like ESPN watching Chris Moneymaker on ESPN. That's how I came into the game and a lot of the people around my age, but now there are people out there who, dare I say, I might not even know who Chris Moneymaker is. A lot of these young guys coming in to them, their superstars are, um, you know, Andrew Nimi or Dan Bilzerian and, and these sort of guys. And I think that's cool. That's something that we as an industry need to recognize and appreciate. For sure. And, and do you, have you noticed a shift? Cause I, I, the one that stands out to me is Kevin Martin. You know, I think he got signed by poker stars. I can't remember. I think it was probably 2016. Cause I think I, 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 I came I, I maybe, yeah, must've been 2016. He got signed and there was an outrage. This is in my mind, this was sort of the changing of the guard in terms of like what poker sites uh, idea was for like ambassadors and stuff, because, you know, there was this idea that if you play hundred K buy-ins and you win tournaments, right. That's like sort of who they were, they were showcasing like a Jason Mercier. Let's take great guy like Jason a lot, right. Was with stars for a while, high roller crusher, you know, kind of whatever. And then he sort of like came into the dad role kind of step step back a bit. And then Kevin Martin like was playing five or $10, $20 tournaments online. And I remember when they like sort of stopped with some of their ambassadors, like the the, the high roller players. And then they, they were bringing on streamers like Kevin Martin, you know, I, there was like outrage. Do you remember this? Sort of like people like, how can you sign this guy? Like he's playing $10 tournaments, right? But that narrative is short. In my opinion, it shifted a lot. And now you see, you know, armies of guys and different stakes and different types of games that are on. And that's sort of like, where it's gone. Did you notice that? And have you noticed maybe more acceptance amongst 
the high rollers and the community in general that have sort of been like, all right, like, look, this is good for our game. This is good for our ecosystem and not so much a negative attitude. But I think also you hear like sometimes people be critical, right? Like people are like, oh, these guys aren't great players. Or, this guy's not a great player. But like ultimately, you know, that's not like it's good, I think, for the community and for everyone, for all stakes when new content comes in. Do you feel that way? Do you feel like there's a little bit of a the higher stakes guys are more like, oh, this is good. Content's good. Or these guys are good to see them with their cameras out and doing the stuff and whatever. Like, have you noticed that or no? Yeah, I, I certainly hope that those players appreciate it. I know from an industry perspective, the industry operators have. And like you said, there was a shift around the Kevin Martin time where. Um, you know, you could write, I could write a whole book about sponsorship in poker and how it's changed in the last mm. 20 years. You know, there was a time where you, if you won a tournament, you could get a patch deal. It didn't matter yeah. if you had yeah. a personality or anything, just because you won, you would get a patch deal. Yes. That's yeah. And it shifted around the time you just mentioned where, um, I think these online sites and these online operators realize that just because you have a former world champion on your roster isn't going to move the needle. It's not going to bring people in just because you have that name associated with you. What they needed in an ambassador, what they appreciated and what they have now shifted to is somebody who brings more to the table, more content, as we were just talking about, the value of that content. You know, can they build an audience? Can they make that connection? Are they doing vlogs or streaming, interacting with people on social media? Are they being an active ambassador? And I can tell you, having talked to people who are responsible for getting ambassadors to these online sites or these different brands, that's the sort of stuff that they look for. Um, they don't care if you're playing one, two, no limit hold'em. If you have built this audience, if people are connecting with you, and um, that's definitely been one of the bigger shifts. Or, you know, if if you want to get a poker sponsorship now, you have to be more than just a successful player. Um, and and also the character aspect, right? So look, I love guys like Stephen Chidwick and Michael Adamo. There's no denying that they're among the best in poker but they're also very bland. They don't have that outgoing personality. They're not trying to entertain an audience. Right. Uh, and so it's hard for people to connect and relate too much. Whereas a guy like Kevin Martin and a lot of these other people who are putting themselves out there, um, even yourself, you know, the, it, it's just more relatable, I think, to the masses. Yeah, it's also, it's tricky, right? Because you don't see a lot of like crusher, top, top 0.01% that are, that are streaming or putting themselves out there and giving you an in-depth look. So I think it's kind of interesting now because there's a bit of a hybrid where it's like, you know, I feel like I'm in a, in some sense, I felt like this for the last five years. Now, listen, I play in some pretty good sized cash games, right? I'm not as active in the live tournament scene, but I'm very realistic where I stand. You know, like I'm not going to go into a 25K at the Aria and be printing money against Adamo and these guys. Like it's, very, it's just not happening, right? So like, I feel like I'm kind of, I'm like in a, in a transition. Like I'm like a content creator, but also I've played some high stakes and I know, but I also know how, how the, you know, it's like golf, right? Like, it's like when guys that are on the PGA tour, they're shooting like minus five, minus 10, 60 in the sixties, you know, they playing against a guy that's 72 to 75. Like it's a big difference. I mean, you could like be okay and know some of the moves, but like these guys are just going to outperform you in most of the spots in like EV. So it's kind of a funny spot to be. It's also interesting because you see guys, you know, I'll even take like, you know, well, let's take Jamie Staples, Kevin Martin, some of these guys too, you know, that are, that are content guys first, but are really putting in work, right. To get better. And you kind of see that interesting shift where they're going from like content first to like studying, doing stuff and sort of like moving. Right. Cause like, that's ultimately, I think it's an interesting, if you were to take like a chart, you know, and you sort of like dotted guys, like you mentioned Chidwick and Adamo who just 
you know, listen, they're the best in the world. They don't really care. They don't need to like do all their stuff. And that's just, they're set on their, their way. And then you got guys who are maybe like, you know, you could kind of find this middle, but like, it's an interesting way. It's an interesting form to kind of find where you go. Cause the, the better you are, the more exciting it is too, right? If the results are better and you're doing cool stuff, um, you know, like a Patrick Leonard, even like Abe Styles, cause he streams and he's definitely one of like the crushers. So it's like, it's kind of fun to watch this sort of, you know, shift and it's, but you don't really see a lot of the, the crushers diving into the content world, which I think it's more likely you see the content guys trying to like go up, which just naturally makes sense. But you know, what, what are your thoughts on that? Like, I, I just feel like if some of these guys actually, is it maybe part of it's just not who they are personal personality wise, but maybe also it's just like, they realize the, that it is a lot of work. It is kind of hard to do it all. Right. You can't like study yeah. it all days and then do content all day. So like finding that balance in time is difficult. You, you said something there that resonated with me and it's a, a big thing I talk about in poker. So like where people are going. And I think one thing a lot of poker players lack is an end game. Like what is your end game? I've been around this industry to know that poker will either chew you up or spit you out at one point, or you just might lose that passion. Um, yeah. We've seen and whether you're a player or a content creator, we, we've seen that, um, time and time again, and I've been there myself uh, as both a player and as somebody who you know produces content and works in the industry. I've had my ups and downs. I'm on an upswing right now. I'm excited. I've got a passion for for what I'm doing again. But there was definitely uh, you know a spam there. So I always say like, what's the end game? Okay, you win a World Series of Poker bracelet. Okay, you win a half a million dollar score. But then what? You're you're are you just going to keep chasing it? Because that's like swimming with an anchor weighing you down. Eventually it will pull you under unless you're doing smart things with your money, diversifying, you know, building a life outside of poker to help support poker. And, you know, you mentioned Jason Mercier. Here's a guy who uh, I have a lot of respect for, you know, crushes one of the best in the world, all the success. And then has basically said, you know what, I'm stepping away from the game to focus on my family. And he's raising a beautiful family right now. I look forward to the day 10, 15, 20 years, whatever it might be. He comes back into poker because like you uh, alluded to yourself, you know, raising a three-year-old and it's just a different point in your life. At some point when, you know, the, your your son gets older, then I'm sure you'll get back into poker a little bit more full time and, and stuff. And um, yeah. we see that yeah, a lot. I mean, but, yeah, I, I love what you're saying there, too, because it is it is, you know, at the same time, though, Jason or other guys like a lot of these guys, too. You know, it's sort of in your DNA. If you love it and it's a part of you, maybe you get to play some, maybe you're in some private games or apps, maybe you're working on stuff. I know for me personally, um, being USA, right? Like I, I just had a three-year deal with party poker, got a couple announcements coming up and things going on, but it's tricky. Like I always kind of feel kind of like the black sheep or however you want to call it. Like, I don't know what to do, right? Like it's like, Oh, I'm in the U S like you, it's like, Oh, poker in Michigan. That's where I'm from. It's okay. But I live in Miami. So like, I can't, you know, I'm kind of tied handcuffed. It's just sort of brutal. Right? Like if I could, you know, it's just, it's just like, it's a weird, it's sort of weird to be American with poker. Like it's just kind of, feels funny how, how do you feel about that and you're wisconsin right base there's not poker yet they're legalized but sort of michigan got legalized pennsylvania you're talking midwest sort of that way i feel like wisconsin's a little more liberal and sort of open to things like do you see wisconsin passing and what's your overall u.s uh prediction for online poker in states coming on board yeah i don't think wisconsin will be anywhere close if you will i just read a, a story earlier today this morning in fact that um, apparently there's some movement in New York, which would be huge. There's been movement in New York before. It always fails. I think they've tried like 10 times and it always fails, but they do have sports betting now. And so this, 
this seems like it might have a, a legitimate legitimate chance, and of course that would be huge. New York being, you know, one of the bigger states in the in the union. Um, look, it's been almost twelve years since Black Friday, uh, or I'm sorry, almost uh, not twelve, eleven years. Yeah, eleven years since Black Friday, and we all thought online poker would be further along than than where it's at. I think seven states have legalized it. Two of those don't even have operators right now, so it's only live in five states. Um, and only two or three of them have an interstate compact. Which, going which on. are the two that are live that aren't operating? Uh, West Virginia and Connecticut. They okay. they oh, have wow. the yeah they have the ability to offer online poker. They have online gaming. They just uh, okay. don't have the populations. I don't think to support uh, the support online poker. Interesting. Yeah, I didn't know Connecticut. I'd heard West Virginia. Um, that's yeah. It's just crazy too because these are all they they haven't quite. Can you explain a little more clearly on the? In interstate, like how it works within, because I know for some of these New Jersey, Nevada, there is some relationship with WSOP and having bracelets and shared. But like as a as a whole, is that are they the only two together? Like is it is Delaware not a part of that, or how does that work? And and how, what's your prediction on those states that are online? Will they will they be able to share a pool for liquidity or not anytime soon? Yeah, I, I think so. So uh, New Jersey and Nevada have had a interstate compact almost from the get-go and it's strong and wsop.com is the only operator in nevada so they're the only ones joined up with their wsop.com uh, new jersey counterparts and that's why you see like bracelet events or gold ring events combine these player pools now delaware is part of that interstate compact but those players aren't eligible for bracelet events or ring events and the difference is is that in new jersey and nevada wsop.com runs their own software we're in Delaware, they just license it out to a third party, to an operator in Delaware. So that's kind of the disconnect there. WSOP.com is operating their own sites in uh, Pennsylvania right now, and they're uh, foreseeably going to launch in Michigan this year, where other online sites are already operating. And the hope is that they can combine Michigan and Pennsylvania with New Jersey and Nevada and form this larger player pool, which would be great. Fingers crossed that happens in 2022. I think there's a good chance of it. I know that uh, the the groundwork is already there. Michigan has already said, yes, we have legislation. We're willing to do these interstate compacts. It's just a matter of, of making it happen. And I think that will be the next big um, domino to fall in the U.S. market. Like Once that happens, it's going to be a boon to players, to the player pools, but it should also garner and draw some attention from other states being like, okay, what's going on here? Why aren't we part of this? So, And then, you know, to a quick, real quick side note, um, the pandemic itself obviously was very uh, rough on on so many people. But from an online poker perspective, uh, there was a boom, right? People were stuck at home, so they were playing. And you had a lot of casinos around the country who were shut down. Some of these casinos had online gaming. And these casinos that were looking at them and saying, holy cow, they're still making money. Why don't we have online gaming? That's why Connecticut, that's why it rushed so fast so that the um, Foxwoods and Mohegan Sun, the tribes that operate those casinos, they seen what was happening in New Jersey, that the Borgata and those guys were still making money. And so they kind of rushed legislation through so that they can get online gaming too. And I think that others took notice in in that we're picking up steam in that regard. Makes 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 a... Makes a lot of sense. Very interesting. And I, I got to ask you, because this, uh, you know, speak, shooting back over here, we look at your your bracelet win, the casino event, pretty sweet, especially kickoff. Got to put a little extra pep in your step for the uh, 
for the um, series, right? It's kind of nice to walk around with the bracelet and do your thing, the extra cheese in your pocket. But looking at the Hendon Mob here, um, you know, also again, like the name, right? It's Hendon Mob. It's it's sort of like mob negative like connotations within poker and, and the site's old, but like this is something I use on everyone in my podcast, anyone that plays poker. It's amazing to sort of recap to go back and see the history because it all kind of blends together, right? You start playing Vegas for the summers and or the, the WSOPs and these different things. You see there's some wins in there. You can go back to see who you played against, the field size. It's really cool, right? How they do this. Um, and actually, no interesting note that you like almost every person on my podcast, maybe 97% final tabled their first ever um, event. So that was kind of funny or for their score on the Hennemann. What is Limit Omaha, by the way? I've never even heard of this. This is uh, Hot Limit Omaha, but Limit? I've never that heard was, of it. That was, no, that was such a, a fun tournament. So it was, it was Omaha High, only Omaha High, and it was played in a Limit format. And um, we ended up chopping that tournament. The Hend- So in Missouri, you're not supposed to chop. So it was an under the table deal. Hence why Hendon doesn't really reflect it. Um, I only remember it because I negotiated one of those chops in my life where basically I, I was sitting third in chips and wanted to do this eight-way deal. I taught two of the people to just taking their buy-ins back. It was a $250 tournament, what have you, and talked first and second place who had a lot more chips than me to take the same amount as me. So I, you know, nobody got more money than me. I don't, I'm sorry, that was just a fun The art of the deal. Was, the art of the deal I, at its best. Yeah, I didn't want to chop. They said... I said, if I told you what I would accept, you would laugh at me. And they said, just tell us. And so I told them, and to my surprise, they accepted. So Wow, that's uh, that's pretty amazing. And then, so I guess what I, my, my kind of alluding to and what I want to ask you as someone that is very immersed in the industry and the, the inner workings and the sites and the, the information and stuff, how do you feel in terms of like content-wise? Because like I think that we're kind of missing – something here because like even at the at the hen and mob in here it's like pretty cool there's a gpi site and you see the profiles but like in terms of like showing what what people do you like almost like a pga or a more like a player card where it shows you all your socials it's more in, updated and ingrained do you feel like we're up to speed on this or do you think that we're a little behind in, in some respect because again credit to gpi great award show great stuff they do they really they, they do have something to kind of be proud of and show but it's also i feel like kind of old and outdated where, where do you feel like we are as an industry in terms of media content and and uh information yeah i think we're still going through this process where we're trying to iron that out i think there was so many uh, different entities in the poker world after the boom that had to get sifted out right and a lot have come and gone over that time and i think we're maturing as an industry where we're determining all right, how can we work together better to ensure the, uh, you know, the, the health and longevity of our, of our industry? And so um, one of the things that uh, I love about like a place like Hendon, and I know the MSPT did this. Um, Brian Molesky, the president, was smart. He kept records from day one, results, all the numbers, and now he's built up this great stats database, which players on that tour can reference and they love it. There's a lot of tours out there, a lot of venues that didn't have that foresight and didn't do that. Even the World yeah. Series of Poker, the the records from the early days of the World Series of Poker from the 70s are spotty at best. We we know who the winner might have been, but we don't know who finished second or, or things like that. And so having complete records uh, or as complete as possible, I think, is a very strong tool. We do have Hendon that combines that, but we need to find ways to, um, you know, as an industry as a whole, in my opinion, is like people like the high stakes, the high rollers, those big names, that's great. But 
that isn't reflective of your average poker player, right? So I, I spent time working the mid stakes. I see that disconnect. There's a lot of people, I would and dare say, you know, if you took all the card rooms in the United States at this very moment, paused it and could do a poll with everybody sitting in a poker room right now, and you ask them, who's Michael Adamo? Who's Ali Msurovich? They probably don't know. I would say probably... 70% of them would have no idea. Yes, they would know a Doyle Brunson, Daniel Ranu, guys who you know were around during the poke boom. And so just finding a way to um, shine a light on all aspects of the poker world, from the micro stakes online to the super high rollers and everything in between. Uh, it's easier said than done because there's so much out there. And the way people consume content is, is tough. Like I can write an article about... Um, you know, average Joe winning a, a big poker tournament in Michigan, um, which I have in the past, and it's a great story. And uh, this is a huge prize pool for a tournament in Michigan. But in the larger poker consciousness, it doesn't really garner any attention. Um, whereas if I put, uh, you know, it's just like any news cycle. If you got controversy, you got drama, you got sex, drugs and rock and roll type of thing. It, it gets all the attention, gets all the clicks. Uh, I wish it was the other way around. You know, I, I've written a lot of articles about great charity uh, endeavors and charity events, but they just, nobody reads them. Nobody cares. And um, it's, it's tough. I don't know if there is an answer. I try different things. I don't want to be too, you know, clickbaity or what have you, but from a content perspective, as you know, like you got to get the hits, you got to get the listens, you got to get uh, the traffic. Otherwise you're just not going to survive. Yeah, and, and do you think that we do go to the well too much? Because, you know, you see the Helmus, Negranus, Esfandiaris, Ivies, Durs, like these guys, their names, they're, they're so, like, they carry a lot of weight. People, are, you have your kind of pecking order on popularity and what, you know, how, how, do, you, do you feel like this? Because I think if you go to pokernews.com or not really any of the sites that do like info, you kind of like exactly your point, like those names get hits, right? People, because you get like the average Joe who scrolls through, he's going to be like, oh, I've seen this guy before. I know who that is. So like, is that, is that, is, is it, do we need, are we in need for more of new characters? And also is this part of the problem? The guys, the best in the world right now, just aren't, not saying they don't have great personality. They're just, they're just like more to themselves and they're not like social, you know, Albert, like the, the Luke Schwartz's and you know, these, uh, the Umberto Brennis's, these characters, these, these guys that are like Tony G's that, that are very outspoken and sort of known, like what is, what, what is the issue here and what can be done or what needs to happen in your opinion? A real quick fun story about going to the well too much on these big names. A great example happened several years ago. I mean, probably eight years ago, me and Mickey Doft, a uh, tournament reporter, were working a day 1A of a circuit event in uh, Tunica, Horseshoe Tunica. Nobody cares. It's day 1A of the main event. But right. we were going through the chip counts at the end of the night and there were certain names that stuck out to us. There was a guy named um, like... Steve Cunningham and Craig Ivy. There was also like a William Brunson. And so, and they all bagged. And so we led just for kind of shits and giggles. We led the article headline was Brunson Cunningham and Ivy bagged day one, a of horseshoe tunica and put that on the front page. And the traffic was just like went off the charts. You know, it was, it was shameless. It was kind of just a bit of fun for us, but there's no doubt that they have that drawing power and that yes, um, Entities go to that well time and time again because it, it's proven true. Now, how do we solve that? I It's hard to make new poker characters and in, in poker superstars in this day and age. It really is. Um, it does happen, 
but it's hard for them to, to gain traction. As an industry, I would like us to somehow come together and I don't want to say like determine who is going to be the next big superstar or, or anything like that, but how as an industry as a whole can we identify these players or these personalities that we think could benefit the industry that deserve that exposure and, and that boost and do that together as an industry. Um, you know, whether that's uh, you know, one thing that I would like to see is, you know, how the tournament directors association, the TDA has a summit every other year where they get together and they talk about the industry from a tournament director's perspective. I'd like to see something similar for content creators or poker media. Uh, yeah. Just to get together and and discuss certain things like this, like how, you know, what strategies can we do to make new characters, uh, right. and not only that, iron out other things that are always in flux in uh, the poker world, like is preflop hyphenated or not? It's not, but uh, you know, just to get on the same page as an industry, I think that could be a good first step in laying the groundwork on how we um, can start working towards building new characters. Yes, uh, I, I, I agree. Now, I got a I got a question because I asked Matt Savage this, and he's been on, and it's it's interesting because I played at at um, Dust Till Dawn in Nottingham, playing a tournament. William Kasuf happened to be at my table. Go figure. Who's just like over the top talking? You know, I know you got Ace King. You know, oh, I'm gonna fold, or you must have, you know, like just over the top, like saying what you have, what he has. I got I got kings. You can't call like stuff like that, right? But then in the World Series, it's like I feel like in a lot of places here, the dealers seem to be informed, instructed, like as a default, no talking. Like don't talk. Like the weather is the cutoff, right? Like if I'm like, man, I think you got it here. God, how could you? How could you be bluffing? There's no way you're bluffing here. They're like you can't talk about it. You can't say that. And Matt Savage sort of told me, no, that's not the case. Like there is like a. I think that's part of the problem, in my opinion, is like this is sort of like making people by default feel like they're doing something wrong if they're talking and like this kind of, I think sort of translates into a problem where of course the guys have, you know, put their scarf and their hoodie up and like, don't talk in our lockbox and whatever. But like, as a, if you're at a table, I'm at the hard rock 3,500 and I want to chat to an amateur at the table, like, man, you really just going at me every hand, huh? Like stuff like that. Like they're telling the like, you can't talk, right? That's what happens. And I don't think that that's not really the rule. Do you, what are, what are your thoughts on the rules? And is it clear? Because it seems foggy to me and i don't think people are really well trained i think it also hurts the industry yeah i think a lot of rules have been taken to the extreme when they weren't designed that way and we need to pull it back similar to the nfl right the games that you watch people were getting fed up with how uh, many flags were being thrown and how the refs were interfering with the game like just let them play when there's an egregious error then you step in and i think the same could be said for poker i'm all about honestly you should be able to say whatever you want if, if me and you are heads up we should be able to say whatever we want, level each other in every which way, um, and and go at it. I don't see the the harm in that. Um, but they've just taken it to the extreme of, like you said, like no talking. You can't reveal any information. Uh, it's, it's just it takes away from the game. It's one of the things we loved about the poker boom era. It was on ESPN. We like to see Mike Demel, Mattis out, uh, you know, chirping at Greg Raymer. We like to see Daniel Negreanu talking through a hand and and putting his opponent on on a specific uh, you know, pair or whatnot. And those are the things that people loved. Not this. I mean. I got to be honest with you. I watch a lot of poker and I've watched a lot of these super high rollers and they're pretty boring. There's nobody chatting. They're just sitting there. Yeah. The level of play is, is excellent, is awesome, but that's, you know, when it's not character driven, it's going to be hard to, to build an audience. And 
Yeah. Uh, it's, yeah. I think, I think there needs to be a, uh, a statement and maybe even the grand you or someone who's, you know, very visible and public and explaining this and, and bring it back to light because it's, um, I do feel like there's a lot of misinformation on this, even to the point where the, the directors and tournament staff or floor don't really know. Right. Or they're just kind of coached like, Hey, this is a problem. Like, I, I think we need to get that back to, uh, we need to get that back to a default, right? That, that like where the, where the line is. I think it was a Jamie gold, right? That was sort of where things got, got flipped on its head. Well, I mean, what's that? 2006, 2006. Yeah. yeah. That's where, yeah. that is really where it changed. Yes. Yeah, so it's a long time. And I, and I think the, the game is not better off for, for the rules that have come. Um, yeah. Where it's come. Let me ask you about, we're going to, I want to talk about your the tweet. Cause I love that. We, we have that up here. And then also just quickly though, your zombies comic book, you did a, uh, you said no plans for a sequel. I have something you made like a comic book. Who made that? What is that? And how did that come about? Yeah. So in 2015, I released a, a comic book. I sold it at the World Series in the hallways at the Rio called the WSOZ, the World Series of Zombies. And it was basically, uh, I'm a big comic book guy. I've always have been. And so I wanted to find a way to combine my writing with my passion for poker and my love of comic books at the time, you know, the zombie genre, which is a genre I've always loved with the walking dead was very popular. So I'm like, and I've spent a lot of time walking around the Rio in the hallways and I've had, you know, the, the daydream of what would I do right now of a zombie outbreak happened during the WSOP. And so that was kind of that thought process that I turned it into a, a comic book, you know, featured a lot of uh, well-known poker players with their permission in it and, and such. And the world series gave me their blessing and, um, it was just a passion project that I wanted to, you know, scratch my creative itch, and uh, yeah, that was a, it was a lot of fun. I, it would have been fun to do a sequel, but the WSOP, I think, uh, they kind of put the kibosh on it in a little ways. I wasn't too, you know, I wasn't going to go through with it for sure, but when I approached them, like, hey, I'm thinking about doing a sequel, they were basically like, we'd rather you not, because what happened, I think, was um, I asked them, hey, can I do this? Because they're very protective of their image and their brand, right? And I think they kind of just said, yeah, sure, whatever, you're Chad. Um, they didn't expect me to do it to the, the scale that I did. And it ended up attracting the uh, uh, attention of the Caesars Entertainment legal department and things like that. Uh, it was still fine. They were like, yeah, we told him he could. But as far as a sequel, they were kind of just like, let's let's not. So, Yeah. And and I and I speaking of that, I mean, there's so many things, so many interesting stories and and. and, and different things you've seen uh, runs and epic things. And I'm sure you've seen it all, but what are your sort of thoughts with the, the new, the new venue here for the world series? Cause I mean, what you've basically been at the Rio your entire career, right. And you have this sort of uh, epic, if you will call it tweet goodbye to WSOP at Rio. You write since my first visit in 2009, I estimate I spent one to two and a half years of my life inside these walls. It's one where I won my bracelet. That's true. Lost my virginity. Let's talk about that. Met my first wife and met the woman I leave her for before meeting my second wife. So many memories. So let's talk about true and false here. What's going on? Uh, this tweet got a lot of love. I actually, I don't know why it does that. I liked it, retweeted it. I, think, I don't know why it takes it off. Seems to always do that. But this sure, is a great sure. tweet. Yeah, I wrote that's a lot of action um, as well because it, it is. That's that's a lot. So break that down for me. And what does this mean to you, the real ending? All right. Well, first off, uh, you know, I took that picture one day when they were clearing things out. There's nobody in the hallways. I'm like, all right, let me take a goodbye photo at the Rio. So that was kind of just sitting on my phone for, for a couple of days. And um, it was, I was in the Denver airport. I was flying home from the world series. It was a couple days after it had ended and everybody was sharing their, you know, goodbye Rio stories or their messages or what have you. And so I'm like, Oh, I better, I probably should do one too, but I don't want to take the same 
route that everybody else did. I'm like, I don't want to be nostalgic about it. I kind of want to be funny about it. So um, the first part is true. My first uh, WSOP was 2009. And really, I have calculated uh, based upon the number of days each year, the average hours, it's probably about 1.5 years of my life I have spent inside the real. So uh, wow. it's bittersweet for me that they're leaving. It's always you know, been nice to start home, but I am excited for the new venue change uh, without a doubt. Uh, and then basically the rest of it is just me being funny farce. I've never been married. I did win my bracelet there. Of course. Um, I did not lose my virginity there. Um, I've never been married. And I think just, it, I almost didn't send it. It was, it was just like, I, I was super tired. I was sitting at Qdoba on a layover and I wrote it and I'm like, this, is this even funny? Does this even make sense? And then I'm like, ah, oh, what the hell? And I sent it out and much to my surprise. Yeah. It just, it caught fire. And from what people have told me since then, is I guess just the way it's worded really gets them thinking like, wait a minute. All right. So he was married and then he met the woman that he would leave her for before he met his second wife. Yeah. So wait, is that the same person? No, that's three different women. Like, so it just yeah, messes yeah, with I, people's minds. Yeah, that was, it's exactly that. It's, they're very thought provoking. It also does make you think about how much time as a player, or if you've been there for that long, how much time you spent there, how many days you start looking around. Wow. I have this many things and this, this many tournament, <laughs> you think about bad beats and, and memories and all that. So it's uh, it's definitely thought provoking. And what about the new venue? I, I've got some information on it. I know the schedule is now released. What, what are you most excited about? And also most sort of, I guess, concerned about like parking, for example, looks like to be people are, are thinking that's an issue. I mean, I'm sure they have some workarounds and some, some thoughts, but what are some sort of uh, thoughts to those that you would say advice, if you would, from what you understand of the new venue on what people should expect and also, be ready for. Yeah. I guess my first piece of advice would be like, let's just give this a chance, right? Yes. It's going to be easy to compare the flaws against the real parking is probably the biggest issue. I know they're working on some solutions for that and we should have more information on that coming up. I know from poker news, we're going to release uh, as much info about here's how you can get to the new venue, where you can park, how the monorail works, all that kind of stuff. So just be willing to learn, be patient. Let's give it a chance. Um, for me, what I'm most excited about is like I explored the venue. When the rumors broke last summer, I called up my buddy Jesse Fullen at Poker News. I said, we're both in Vegas. Let's go down there. So we walked down there. We live streamed as we walked through this convention space. And I was skeptical when we went in. But once I got in there, I'm like, this is going to be fantastic. I've got a lot of World Series of Poker experience inside the Rio, as we just discussed. I see it. Like it's it's bigger. It's the space is better. The bathroom situation is a lot better. The restaurant situation is a lot better. And something I'm most excited about is it's on the strip. So you're going to have what we didn't have at the Rio, and that's passerby traffic, right? People are going to walk by, and if Caesars and the WSOP do their job correctly and advertise and let people know right inside here are the biggest poker games in the world, people walking by are going to be like, let's go in and let's check this out. That's a great point. I didn't even think about that. There legitimately could be an uptick in new entrants and people that are just like there for the weekend or walking by and, you know, pop in. Because I think you said the marketing is really important, like same day tournament or single table set or WSOP, you know, whatever, like let people know it's not like a week long thing for all these things. Like if you're there, you can play, have the schedules readily available, have people outside answering questions, you know, have, have sort of a really good flow of, of information. You mentioned restaurants and all American Dave, one of my very close friends, he's been a staple at the world series for so long, started serving meals, uh, to those, like some friends doing personalized stuff. It caught fire quickly, right? People saw it like, wow, I want that. Or there's not a lot of healthy options. 
What are your thoughts about this? And do you have any information on the up to date? Because I talked to him last week. Gonna gonna fall back up with him, and you know he's sort of synonymous with the WSOP. What 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 is your take on the All American Day food truck situation, which is serves so many a healthy option uh, for those? And, and what do you think is going to happen with that? And, and any feeling or thoughts on how that might play out? Yeah, I mean, first, All American Day certainly is a staple at the the WSOP. I think that healthy option has been fantastic. The quality of food is great. I've partaken, you know, many times over the years. Um, I have always said, and I wish, and I don't know the exact scenario or politics behind it of why, you know, the Rio couldn't have had more food trucks as well, you know, had a whole rotunda of food trucks, if you will. I think that would have uh, would have been great for, for everybody. But, yeah. you know, it was All-American Day for the most part set up back there. And I know a lot of poker players use it. You see it on every break. You see it on Twitter. Um and I don't know the exact situation. Uh, I just kind of assumed with the new venue, you're like, look, these Vegas uh, casinos have their own unions and, and things like that. And with so many food options, more food options at the Bally's in Paris, um, perhaps there's some sort of issue there. I, I'm not quite sure what it is, but obviously I've seen the, the support that he's had on social media. I know he's got some heavy hitters in his corner that will no doubt be pushing uh, to get him there for this yeah. uh, WSOP with officials and whether or not it works out, uh, I guess remains to be seen. If it doesn't, if he can't be there, I hope he can figure out a way to um, work off site and deliver or, or something like that, because I just can't imagine, um, you know, the WSOP without all American Dave. I mean, he's been there. I don't know when he first started, but it's probably pretty close to right around when I started. Cause I can't remember a time when he wasn't there. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It's been over a decade, I believe. And, you know, again, yeah, there's so many, uh, you know, he's adaptive. I know he's got some cool stuff up his sleeve and, and working hard on some side projects. And, you know, I think that one way or another, he'll make it work. It might even have to be, um, th there are ways, but like you said, there's also, there's some, some logistics, things we just don't know, right. It could be the restaurants that are there, union stuff, yeah. um, you know, how that I, all works. I can place. tell you as somebody who's worked behind the scenes quite a bit that we see people complain on Twitter about certain things and they have no idea about what's yeah. happening behind the scenes. And usually it's something like, Look, yeah, we would love to have, you know, All-American Dave there. We just legally cannot because of the union situation. I'm not saying that's the case. That could yeah. just be, you know, an example of what's happening or, or what yeah. have you. So stuff like that happens all the time. I, I will also say that, you know, in my personal life and that, that oftentimes when you have something, something that we could probably both relate to is Black Friday, right? So you're already in the industry. Black Friday happens. I, I, I'm curious on your take on that. Um, as well. But like, I remember when that first happened to me, you know, I was living in Baltimore. I was actually in New York at the moment at a friend's house playing online and like saw this DOJ message and like money's frozen. Okay. Like that's one issue, but really the issue is, all right, well now like I need to live somewhere else or go do something that's like a disruptive thing in my life and many people's lives. If I want to continue to do what I'm doing. Um, and this like appeared to be the worst thing ever, but I would say it was the best thing that ever happened to me. Change some thoughts, focus, other areas of my life getting organized, right? So this is one of those things too, for potentially could find another way where he's like, wow, like I was doing this way or this, maybe it's this way I do better, right? And I guess to segue out of that and like, maybe this seems bad and better, like what about Black Friday for you? Did that, did you think you were going to need a new career? What were you doing at that moment? And looking back, how did that moment change sort of your trajectory and path on what you're doing? I remember where I was when it happened, but I also remember I was so new in poker news at the time. Like this was, I just finished the 2010 World Series and that fall, 
uh, I really kind of established myself, got some work gigs. And it wasn't until kind of that spring where I got brought on full time, if I recall correctly. And then Black Friday happened in April. So I still wasn't mature as a, you know, a writer. I wasn't entrenched in the poker industry as much as I am now. Um, and so when this was breaking, I just kind of remember thinking, okay, like the, here's the story of the day. I didn't realize how big of a story it was, how big of a bomb it was in, yeah. in the poker industry in to that regard. I had luckily had colleagues that I was working with who did understand that aspect. Um, I just remember thinking, okay, well, I'm going to write this up. It'll probably be resolved tomorrow or something. I was, I had, you know, 200 bucks on my poker stars account, whatever it was trying to log in like everybody else. Um, I certainly at the time didn't realize just how big of a development in really now the history of poker that that moment was. Um, and then of course, over the following years, uh, months and years, seeing how it played out. Like you said, people who were entrenched in the poker industry from a player's perspective, debating whether they needed to go out of the country to continue to make a living. And, and uh, yeah, from our perspective, when you lose those sort of big online players who account for a lot of advertising, a lot of people lost their jobs. A lot of people did uh, at that point in time, especially from the content side of things, the industry side of things. Um, and I was definitely worried. But fortunately, you know, Poker News was in a strong position and managed to weather the storm. There certainly were many, many outlets that weren't so fortunate back then. And um, kind of like I said earlier in the show, another form of luck that just kind of, you know, the bad luck for, for the industry, uh, obviously in a bad situation overall. But, um, you know, for me, it was just lucky that I was in a position in a company that could, could weather such a, a big development. For sure. And, and, you know, Sarah Herring and Christy Arnett and some other people I've known for many years and Poker News has such a strong pedigree of, of, of talent from workers and reporters and articles. W what has been your most memorable sort of uh, experience or, or thing that you've done with Poker News up to this point? What, what are something that stands out for just maybe travel or uh, article you got to write or a story, anything that really jumps out to you? Yeah, there's a there's a handful. So number one is just the travel. Like you mentioned, I grew up in Wisconsin in a trailer park, uh, not a lot of money. And so the idea of not only getting to travel the world, but getting paid to do it uh, seemed like a pipe dream. But I got to live it. So I'm always appreciative of that and the places I've gotten to go. Um, as for content that I've produced, uh, I think two really stick out at me. One is I'm a huge fan of the TV show The Office. Uh, and anybody who loves The Office like I do knows that they did an episode called Casino Night in which they revealed Kevin Malone won a 2002 2500 deuce to seven bracelet, right? And an event that doesn't exist. But I wanted to see if I could combine my poker with my love of The Office. So I managed to get in touch with his agent and did an interview with him. And we, we talked about you know, that storyline or what have you. So just to find a way to use poker to get to connected to my favorite TV show has been a, a very rewarding to me. Um, then my favorite story that I've written to date was uh, I was a history major in college. I love the history of poker. Um, and there was a tweet thread back in 2013 where Doyle Brunson mentioned a guy named Bob Hooks. Uh, Bob Hooks finished second in the 1975 WSOP main event. He helped, uh, he was at the first ever World Series of Poker. He helped establish it. At, uh, at Binion's Horseshoe. He had a big role in the World Series of Poker history. And everybody thought he was dead. Even Doyle Brunson. He's like, I haven't talked to him in years. I, I think he's passed away. I seen on this tweet thread, there was one woman, hardly any followers or anything, said, Bob Hooks isn't 
dead. He's, he's alive and living at our hotel in Texas. And I saw that. And so I reached out to her and a uh, long story short, he was there. I got poker news to fly me down there. And I spent two days sitting with Bob hooks. You know, he was in his eighties. He's since passed away, unfortunately, but sat down with him and just let him turned on my tape recorder and let him share all that history, all these stories that everybody thought was, was gone. And I turned it into uh, an article that is still my favorite to this day. The WSOP uh, honored him by nominating him for the poker hall of fame that year. He didn't get inducted, but um, they recognized him by, you know, nominating him. Um, And so it was just a very rewarding experience from a lover of history to be able to bring this history that was, uh, you know, people thought was dead, that was hidden to the light and, and share that with the poker. You got to send me that out. Maybe I can put that in the show more in the, uh, the below YouTube video. Cause that, that is that I haven't seen that story and that sounds fascinating. What was his demeanor? Was he sort of like at that time, was he happy go lucky? Was he like the poker? It's been a great game for me. Or was he kind of like, you know, how down on his like, kind of like, Oh, you know, like what, how, what was the overall takeaway from that? Well, so it got off to a rocky start in that I showed up at this hotel. I flew into Dallas, drove like 90 minutes and the woman at the hotel met me and she's like, look, I got to tell you something. He doesn't know anything about this. I haven't told him. And I, as a reporter, I'm losing my mind. Like you, I flew all the way down here. We have this time and he doesn't even wow. know. She's like, she's like, just trust me. I know him very well. If I would have told him, he would have said no, but he's, he, he'll do this. Trust me. And so I did. And, and sure enough, you know, we get in a room and, um, you know, like uh, a lot of older guys who, you know, they like to share stories of the past. They like to bring up those memories. And that's what it was. It was two days of just sitting with him. He needed some naps here and there, what have you. But we went out to dinners and um, he looked back very fondly uh, about the entire industry. He ended up, you know, going back to Texas to raise a family and things like that. And um, it was just great all around to hear those stories hear what he contributed to poker and then just knowing that he, as he was nearing the end of his life, didn't seem to have uh, many regrets. I think the one regret maybe he did kind of express was, um, you know, back in 1975 during the WSOP main event, players didn't care. It it didn't, the WSOP wasn't like it was today, right? They didn't care really who won. It was all about the money. Bracelets weren't really a thing at the time. Um, And so he knew what the game grew, grew into. So I think he looked back and was like, yeah, maybe I should have won that one. Because what they did is they did a heads-up deal is, is what they did. They just chopped who, it. That was versus who that year? Uh, in 1975 was Sailor Roberts, uh, Brian Sailor Roberts, who is in the Poker Hall of Fame and stuff. So, um, And they were they were friends. They were These guys were Texas road gamblers back then. Mm-hmm. You know, so they were friends, so they chopped up the money. Um, so I think that maybe was his only only regret from a World Series perspective. And did he did he have? I mean, so I'm sure some stories, some epic stories, the whole deal, right? Back in Texas, back in the day, gambling and robberies or this and that, and like behind, you know, she all he it was all that it was all the good, bad, and ugly. Like he he just kind of let it loose. He did, yeah. You know, he didn't have anything to lose by by sharing the stories, and I tried to include as many as of them as I could in the, in the article and stuff. So I, I highly recommend people check it out. I like to think if, you know, the Global Poker Awards existed back then, they didn't, that this uh, piece might have, you know, gotten nominated. It's certainly my most uh, proud piece that I've written. So. Very, very cool. Well, Chad, I have got to say I am, you know, it's it's one of those things I, I think it's refreshing. Some people I, I consider friends and I've known for a long time and do a great job. And Donnie Peters and I mentioned Christy and Sarah and some people I've known for over a decade uh, in poker and they're still, you know, it's great to see you moving up the ranks, become the editor uh, of executive editor of Poker News for USA and doing all the stuff you do. Also getting a bracelet. That's pretty, 
pretty freaking cool. And, and I, I got to imagine it's a little tough at times for you to do reporting and watch hands. You probably see some pretty badly played hands where you're like, man, I should be be in there. That's sort of my last question. I think you did play a full slate or, or a larger slate at one of the WSOPs. Is it hard for you to watch? You know, I played soccer my whole life. It's I love soccer. I love watching. But like if I'm in a place where I have the option, like let's say it's like a pickup game or something, I'm like around like, man, I could probably hop in there and do some things like do you do you struggle with that in terms of like, oh, I want to play or not? Uh, or do you just say you love what you do so much and you know you get to play sometimes so it, so it works? How do you feel about playing versus reporting? Yeah, it's definitely a struggle at times. I won't lie. Like I haven't been able to play the WSOP main event in I think since 2016, and I want to. Like that's an event that um, I want to. I'm able to. You know, one of the benefits of having won that bracelet is people are a little more willing to buy action or or things like that, which is always nice. I um, mean, so I do have the opportunity to play a lot of these events. Um, not always the time or capability, you know, because of my work obligation. So it definitely is a struggle. But like you said, I do try to find spots and uh, play, you know, where I can. I've had the opportunity to, you know, I played the 25K PSPC a number of years ago. So I get the opportunity to play some great poker events. And that's a good thing is there are so many great poker events uh, taking place year round that I'm able to pretty much scratch that itch. But, um, and, you know, one of the benefits to me real quick uh, and I've always tried to remember this throughout my career is I've been in a spot within the poker industry where I've had a front row seat to the best poker players in the world. I've reported with pen and paper in my hand, the high rollers watching the best in the game do what they do. So early on, I realized that I appreciated it. And I said, Chad, you would be a damn fool if you're not trying to learn from what you're seeing right now. And so I've always tried to do that when I'm out there reporting, watching these hands is not just go on autopilot, but to actually try to be actively engaged in learning because the game is constantly evolving and uh, it always will. Yeah, it's, that's, that's, that's amazing. It's true. And I'm sure, again, you've probably, it's one of those things like you could, you could name other careers, other paths, other things, but you probably some of the experiences, lessons, learnings, travels, experiences you can kind of parlay and, and use in a lot of ways. And then already again, moving up, and in an amazing position within the industry. So listen, I appreciate it. Uh, this has been a treat, man. Really nice to catch up and talk. Hopefully see you at the World Series in some other spots and, and you know, got some other cool projects going on on my end. Love to talk to you about and, and fill you in and, and share your feedback and and talk to uh, with you if, you if you're up for it. So yeah, appreciate you, man. This has been, been great to have you and this will go out on all the audio outlets, the major ones. It'll be up on YouTube for you guys to see, of course. And uh, again, thank you so much. And, and we'll put some of your articles and, and links below in the show more. And, and where do people follow you? What's the best way? Is it, it Chad Holloway on, on Twitter is your favorite or what, what, what verticals do you like for social? Yeah, Twitter is definitely the best way. And it's at Chad A. Holloway, A being my middle initial. So at Chad A. Holloway on Twitter is the best place to go. It's definitely where I post, uh, you know, multiple times every day about poker and poker news. So beautiful and there's that that bracelet what a shot what a what a moment for uh for the for everyone there man you can see how happy like what a what a ridiculously great feeling that's something you said like no one can take that away it's got to be you know how often you wear the bracelet as we as we segue out here how do you wear it do you, do you have it where do you keep it uh i will wear it occasionally at like a charity event i've worn it during the you know casino employees event and i like i do like to break it out at home games where i will leave it in my pocket for a few hours and then just slowly put it on and see how long it takes people to notice. Uh, other than that, it lives in a case. I have a, uh, you know, a display case at home. It's got a nice setup uh, with that very picture you just showed in a frame right next to it. And it's definitely a, a place I can go have a peek and, and remember that uh, 
you know, no matter how hard times are, uh, my life has been pretty good to me. So that's amazing. All right. Well, Chad Holloway, thank you so much. This is podcast number 169 in the books on the flow show. We appreciate it. And we'll be catching up soon again. I appreciate the time. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jeff.